if you've had a discouraging week and are not feeling good this morning, then you've come to the right place because you've come to worship the Lord. And I would say that as I look at the way things are going in this world, that it is just getting harder to live for Jesus. At times as we look at what's happening in the world and sometimes even in the church of God, it can be discouraging and it can lead us away from him. But we're here this morning to worship the Lord. He is here. I've experienced him in the music. Thank you so much to the orchestra. Uh, in the children's story and I pray that the Lord will stay here now as we begin our Bible study. And I wonder before we start, I will pray, but before that I wonder if you could, and I, and I mean this, this is not a gimmick, if you could just reach across to the person next to you and grab their hand and look them in the eye, remember there are a lot of hurting people here this morning, and say, Jesus loves you and so do I. Could you do that before we start? You can feel the warmth flooding through the church, can't you? Let's bow our heads. God, I am so thankful that you have brought your people into this church this morning to worship you. We are living in such a troubled world. Many of us have had discouraging weeks, bad weeks, Lord. And yet we've come here this morning as sinners and yet humbly seeking a closer experience with you. That can only happen, Father, if you send your Holy Spirit to be amongst us. He has been here already, but we pray now, Lord, that he'll come in to our hearts and our minds and our lives and draw us closer to Jesus, encourage us so that we can leave this place refreshed because it is a refreshing in you, Jesus, that we seek. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayer. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. I've entitled our Bible study, the sermon, the preaching segment of our sermon this morning, Body of Evidence. I am not a very visual person. If you know me, you'll understand that I don't always see things too well. It's not that I'm blind, it's just that God made me an audio. I hear a lot better than I see. My wife, Diane, praise the Lord for her patience and uh, for her love that she's given me for, well, longer than I can remember now. She is visual, very, very visual. And Diane will say to me, and this happens often, did you see that lady in the white dress and the pink carding at a church today? And I'll look at her as though she's gone mad. And I'll say, no, I didn't. Oh, Diane says she had red shoes and was carrying a black handbag. Sorry, Diane, I, I still didn't see her. And you know, by now Diane's starting to get just a little bit exasperated with this blind as a bat husband of hers. She had on red shoes with high heels, the white dress was long sleeved, she had a ro red rose pinned to it, her handbag was a Louis Van Vuitton, and she had her hair done up in a bun. It's almost like Diane thinks that if she can describe more of what this lady looked like, somehow this husband of hers will get to know who she's talking about. Sorry, Diane, I still don't know who you're talking about. Well, my wife is a determined lady. 
And she doesn't give up easily. And she'll say, Lloyd, she was 1.5 metres high, had blue eyes, brown hair with a slim figure, was walking with a slight limp. She got out of a blue car. She had with her a young boy dressed in the cutest clothes he had on her. And I'll go, Dion, it doesn't matter how well you explain what this lady looked like. I still didn't see her. I did not see her. You see, I am an auditory person. I hear a lot better than I see. And I'm sure most of you out there this morning know whether you are visuals or whether you hear better than you see. This lady that Diane's talking about, she could have shaken my hand at the door. She could have talked to me for a minute or two. I saw her... But I did not see her. I did not see what she was dressed in or what she looked like. I am an audio, like it or not. It is how God made me. Now tell me what the lady said and I will tell you whether or not I saw her. Isn't it amazing how blind we can be? Things can be clear as daylight. We still miss it. Most of the time, you know, it doesn't matter. But let's face it, there are times when it does. Sometimes not seeing with your eyes and recognising things for what they are, I have found can be very, very dangerous. Very dangerous indeed. And this morning for a few moments I want to talk to you about a people who saw but did not see. They heard, they did not hear and they lost their lives because of it. If you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Usually, a preacher will share with his congregation what he himself is studying with. Most of the inspiration for my sermons comes from my own personal Bible study. And at the time right now, I happen to be in a Bible study where I'm looking at the beginning of the world. I'm looking at how mankind developed, how they fell into sin, what happened to them. And this Bible study this morning about a people who saw and did not see, about a people who Heard but did not hear. So they were blind and deaf. Comes from my own personal Bible study. Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 to 2. And I am reading from the New King James Version. The Bible says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that the daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, they saw the daughters of men, that they were very beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, all of whomever they chose. Now, if you study the Bible and you look at the beginnings of mankind, way, way back into ancient history, and this is the only book we have that is reliable source of information to ancient history this far back, you will find that there were two great tribes of people, of men on the earth. Two great tribes came from Adam and Eve who were cast out of the garden because they were sinners. 
The first tribe was the family of Cain. And you'll find the, you'll, you'll find the story of the family of Cain in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4. And if you're not doing something this afternoon, go home, open your Bible, read about the story of Cain. It is a very interesting story. The second great tribe of people who developed on the face of, uh, of the earth, were, it was the family of Adam or, if you like, the family of Seth. Now, the family of Cain did not follow God. They were pagans and they were heathens. We're going to look at them in a minute. But the family of Adam did follow the Lord. And you have mighty men in that family of Adam. You have Seth. Some of you will remember him. You have Enoch. You have Noah himself. Men who in a wicked world stood firm and tall and and, and strong for God no matter what the cost. And it's interesting because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 and 2, look at the verse, look at the scripture, it says the sons of God, they're the boys from the family of Adam, saw that the daughters of men, they're the girls from the family of Cain. It says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them and they married them. I want to tell you, and I guess I speak to the young people especially this morning. I remember pastors used to say this when I was young. And I used to scoff at them. Perhaps I'm showing my age, but it doesn't change the fact that what I'm about to share is the truth. It is the truth from the Word of God. It is God's desire for His children. It is a grave mistake for God's young people to marry outside the faith. And more and more in the church today, I see God's young people marrying outside the faith and it is causing enormous pain, especially if that young person of God's decides to stay faithful to him. These mixed marriages in the antediluvian, in the pre-flood world, study the word, caused wickedness, not to decrease, but to increase. So much so that if you go to verse 3 of Genesis chapter 6, God cries out in anguish as he watches his sons marry the daughters of men, the daughters of Cain. So much so that God cries out in anguish, my spirit, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. These men did not follow God. They were dragged by their wives or by their husbands down into the depths of darkness and eventually these men and women who were of God became men and women of darkness to the extent that when God looked down on the earth He cried out in anguish and said, I cannot strive with these people any longer. They are wicked. And here you have a threat from God in verse 3 because he says, your days will be 120 years. Now, we're not talking about God shortening the great lifespans of these men and women. Men and women who lived to eight, nine hundred, a thousand years of age. What Jesus is doing here. Is is indicating that in 120 years, I will send 
a flood. He's warning them. Your wickedness has almost overflown its boundaries. He says, people, I will send a flood and I will do it in 120 years. Let's look at what the Bible says, verse 4 and verse 5 of Genesis 6. There were giants on the earth in those days. Whoa, what a, what a world it was. You study it from the word. You go and read it from Patriarchs and Prophets, that great book that Ellen White wrote, which really illuminates this time. What a tremendous time on the earth. The Bible says there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, here it is, came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, I did a little bit of study on this particular verse. I, I guess I'm happy to admit and I, I openly acknowledge that my favourite writer outside the Bible is a woman by the name of Ellen White. I believe that she's a woman who God gave some tremendous insights into. She's not the Bible. She doesn't have the authority of the Bible. Oh, she gives us some interesting information on the times that these men and women lived in. Listen to this. And this is from Patriarchs and Prophets. You can go get this book in the library downstairs. This is a little description of this antediluvian of this pre-flood world and its wickedness. She says, God bestowed upon these antediluvians, that just means pre-flood people, many rich gifts, but they used his bounties to glorify themselves. They employed the gold, the silver, the precious stones and choice wood in the construction of habitations for themselves and attempted to excel one another in beautifying their dwellings with the most skilful workmanship. They reveled in scenes of pleasure and wickedness. She goes on by saying, In the green fields and under the shadow of goodly trees they set up the altars of their idols. Extensive groves that retained their foliage throughout the year were dedicated to the worship of false gods. With these groves were connected beautiful gardens. Their long winding avenues, let your mind wander here and see the picture that she's painting here. Their long winding avenues with fruit bearing trees of all descriptions adorned with statutory and furnished with all that could delight the sense or minister to voluptuous desires of the people. And thus allure them to participate in idolatrous worship. Funny you know, we're talking almost 6,000 years later now. I was in Japan just a year or back, so back. I've also was not long ago in Singapore visiting Buddhist temples. God loves Buddhists, praise the Lord. But I want to tell you that that religion is steeped in paganism. And the approach that Satan led used back then to leading people into false worship. Worship of idols is still the approach he's using today. And when I was in Japan, I went to some of the most beautiful gardens I have ever been to. As I read that description that Ellen White gives us there of these gardens of worship in the days before the flood, I'm reminded of Japan. And as I walked through these gardens, I would see Buddhas, dedicated to false worship and people bowing before them and, give, and, and, and swinging incense around and, and same thing. 
6,000 years later, but the same thing. She further goes on by saying, and this really is an insight here to the antediluvian pre-flood world and what it was about them that upset God so much. It says, neither the marriage relation nor the rights of property was respected. Whoever coveted the wives or the possessions of his neighbour took them by force and men exalted in the deeds of violence. They delighted in destroying the lives of animals and the use of flesh for food. That's interesting. Rendered them still more cruel and bloodthirsty until they came to regard human life with astonishing indifference. And God looked down upon this world that he had created, upon these men and women, and make no mistake, that God loved and he saw the wickedness and he saw the evil and it caused him great pain and he said, my flesh will not always strive with the people in this world. And unless they come back to me, they have only got 120 years. Genesis 6, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord was sorry that he had made men on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. You, you get a feel of God's emotions here as he watched this. Men, by force, dragging wives of their neighbours away. By force, taking property that did not belong to them. By force, participating and causing others to participate in wickedness of great darkness. And the Bible says the Lord was grieved in his heart and he said, I will destroy man. And he didn't say this in a spirit of vengeance. It was a, in a spirit of deep sadness. He said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both men and beasts, creeping thing and birds of the air for I am sorry that I have made them. And so began the countdown to the flood. 120 years, a date with annihilation brought about by wickedness. But even so, and you know what? I love this about Jesus Christ. I love this about the Christian God, the God we serve. Even so, God did not leave these wicked antediluvians without a chance of escape. He did not leave them without signs that told them about their impending doom. God never brings judgment on people without giving them an opportunity to escape the judgment. And he gave the antediluvian people, the people before the flood, signs that if their eyes were open and their ears were unstopped, they could have seen, they could have taken notice of these signs and they could have escaped the flood. Let me share some of them with you. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 verse 24. Adam and Eve have just been driven from the garden. Signs? Well, this may not be exactly a sign of the flood, but it's a very firm sign that there is a God in heaven that lives and they could have seen this with their own eyes. Bible says, so God drove out man from the garden and he placed a cherubim, that's an angel, at the east gate of the Garden of Eden. By the way, do you know what Eden means? 
It means pleasure. The garden of pleasure. Why was it the garden of pleasure? Well, it wasn't just the beautiful trees and the wonderful river flowing through that garden. It wasn't just the, the grass and the, the gentle hills and the animals. It was a garden of pleasure because Jesus Christ himself was there spending time with Adam and Eve in the cool of every evening. That's what Eden means, the garden of pleasure. And the Bible says, so he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim and angel at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the garden and the tree of life. Look, those people before the flood, at any time they wanted to, maybe it was a tourist attraction, I don't know, they could have went to the gates of the Garden of Eden and seen a mighty angel with a flaming sword guarding the gates to that paradise. And do you know that the Garden of Eden was there until the flood? And it beats me how people could worship idols and images and set up groves to heathen, pagan, dead gods when all they had to do was walk to the gates of the Garden of Eden they could have seen one of God's angels guarding that garden. If you study this story very carefully you find that they replaced God, the living God whose angel guarded this garden with idols and images. Let me show you a second sign and this is a sign. Genesis 6, verse 13 and 14. Huge sign of the end of the world. Genesis 6, verse 13 and 14 of the end of their world. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out. These people had in their backyard one of the sons of God building an ark. It was a boat. They knew what it was. They knew what it was for. And for 120 years, Noah and his sons, and I guess they hired workmen, built this ark. Huge sign of the end of the world for their day. Unmistakable in their faces, in their backyard. And still they did not see. Still they did not hear. Let me show you a third sign. And this comes from patriarchs and prophets again. 120 years before the flood, the Lord by a holy angel declared to Noah his purpose and directed him to build an ark. Well, we've got that already. While building the ark, look at this. He was to preach that God would bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy the wicked. This is amazing. For 120 years, this son of God, as he was building this boat, told the people, they came in the thousands to hear him. He said, I'm building this ark because God has had it with your wickedness. He was going to flood the earth. How direct, how clear can the sign be? But you can still be saved. Now Noah was some preacher. He had the Spirit of God moving through him. And when he preached, people didn't go to sleep. People listened. And they took notice. And initially it caused a stir. It caused a revival. And people said, yes, we are wicked. Oh yes, perhaps God is going to end the world. Yes, we will get on the boat. But as I studied this story, I found that as the years went by, they 
ever so slowly drifted from that first decision to get on the boat with Noah till eventually they became opposed to what the old preacher was saying. But for 120 years, they had a man of God telling them that the end of the world was upon them. Sign four. I'm going to make a couple more. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. He was the oldest man that we know to ever walk the face of the earth. He died in the year of the flood, 969 years of age. Methuselah helped Noah, his grandson, build the boat. Methuselah helped Noah, his grandson, preach the truth to these wicked people. And Methuselah's name, and some of you may or may not know this, but the antediluvians knew it because names meant something to people back then. They were named for a characteristic or an event that would remind people of that person. Methuselah means when he dies, judgment begins. When he dies, judgment begins. And the year Methuselah died, the flood swept over the world. Sign 5, Genesis 7, turn in your Bibles, verse 15, 16. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, look at this, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So they entered, male and female, of all flesh, stay with us, went in as God had commanded and the Lord shut Noah in. Look at this passage. With agony of desire that words cannot express, Noah entreated the people to seek refuge while it may be found. Again they rejected his words and raised their voices in jest and scoffing. Suddenly a silence fell upon the mocking throng. Look at this, look at this. What a sign. Beasts of every description. The fiercest as well as the most gentle were seen coming from the mountain and the forest and quietly making their way toward the finished ark. Time is almost up. The flood is upon them and God sends this stupendous, stunning sign. A noise as a rushing wind was heard and low birds were flocking from all directions, their numbers darkening the heavens and in perfect order they passed into the ark. And still they didn't believe. What more could God have done? They saw with their eyes the animals going into the ark. They heard with their ears, they heard with their ears the rushing of the wind as the birds guided by God's holy angels flew into the ark and still they did not see, still they did not hear. And so God gave one last sign. Again, from Ellen White and Patriarchs and Prophets. A flash of dazzling light was seen in a cloud of glory more vivid than lightning descended from heaven and hovered before the entrance of the ark. The massive door which it was impossible for those within to close was slowly swung to its place by unseen hands. That last final devastating sign that actually told them that the judgment was come and it was too late as that angel closed that huge door. Seven days later the rain came and millions were annihilated. It was the extinction of a great and mighty race of men. How could they? This is where I want to go as I finish this today. How could they 
see all these signs. Ask yourself, how could they see all these signs and yet miss it? All the evidence of a coming flood was before them. Still they missed the warning and lost their lives. How could it happen? Turn with me to Luke 21. Luke chapter 21. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. Luke 21 verse 11. Or sorry, verse 7. And if you haven't got your Bibles, follow along on the screen, but please bring them next time you come here to worship because we're a Bible-believing church. This is Jesus' disciples. And I'm going to read this verbatim. We're asking ourselves, how could the people miss the signs of the flood? Now, I hope this comes home to you this morning. So they said to Jesus, Teacher, these are his disciples, when will all these things be? And what, will sign, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place, when the end of the world is coming? They're saying, Lord Jesus, tell us, we're your disciples, we're your followers, tell us what it will be like at the end of the world. And he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be terrified, for these things must come come to pass first. But the end is still not for the world. And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in many places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from the heavens. And there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars, verse 25. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven will be shaken. These are signs of the end of the world. Then they will see the Son of Man, praise God, coming in power and great glory. Now when these things happen, Jesus says, he's not talking to the antediluvian world this morning, he's talking to you, the generation that faces the end of the world. He says, when these things happen, look up, lift up your heads, because praise God, your redemption, he's talking to you, your redemption draws nigh. Signs of the end of the age, wars, earthquakes, pestilences, rebellions and revolutions, terrorism, hurricanes, floods, pandemics, fear of the future. Luke 21, 28 says, now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And I ask myself this morning, I ask myself, I ask the church that God has sent me to serve, Is it possible? Could we, living the good life in Australia, and what a wonderful country God has blessed us to live in, could we, could we be missing the signs of the end of the age just as our antediluvian brothers missed the signs of a coming flood? As the door of the ark was closed by that mighty angel, it was a stunning display of God's power an unmistakable sign of of imminent doom, Alan White in Patriarchs and Prophets said this, look at this. Let the truth of this statement burn into your hearts this morning. God wants to save you. He wants to see you in his kingdom and he has sent these signs to you for a reason and he has given us the story of the people before the flood for a reason. 
And it's not just because it's interesting. And it's not just to see the power of God as he brings judgment on a wicked people. Look at this. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 97 to 99. This statement hit me more than any other statement as I studied for this sermon. She says, Men have become so hardened by their persistent rejection of light that even in this scene, and we're talking about the animals coming into the flood, into the ark to escape the flood, hundreds of animals coming into the ark, sent there by God, angels herding them in, wild lions, trumpeting elephants, wild, vicious, ferocious leopards, kittens and dogs, and every form of animal was brought into the ark, not by Noah, he would never have been able to do it, but by God himself, a stupendous sign. The men, Ellen White says as I read this, looked agog at the power of God as he did this. But look what she says. Stunning sign. She says, men had become. Oh, I hope this is not us. I I hope this is not Lloyd Grolamond. Men had become so hardened by their persistent rejection of light that even in this scene produced but a momentary impression. They banished the rising fear by boisterous merriment and by their deeds of violence. The antediluvians, or hear this if you hear nothing else today, had inoculated themselves against the signs of a coming flood through their desire for wealth, through their lusts for each other, in their endless search for pleasure. Does that kind of remind you of a culture that we're familiar with? These people had actually made it impossible for God to get through to them. It was not until the rain began to fall that they finally realised the great danger they'd always been in. Jeremiah 6 verse 9, talking about a similar people, says, They hear, but they don't hear. They are seeing, but they don't see. The signs were there for all to see before the flood. And yet only eight people out of the millions that lived on the world in that time walked into the ark. A devastating hurricane destroys New Orleans and over 1,000 dead. The imminent threat of a bird flu pandemic terrifies governments and populations around the world. Are you hearing me? Another hurricane and mudslide killing thousands in Guatemala. Three hurricanes destroying a number of Chinese cities, thousands dead. Hundreds and hundreds dead from terrorist bombings. From Afghanistan to Iraq and on to Russia and even Bali. Earthquake ravages Pakistan and India, 40,000 plus people perish. The Pope calls for people to return to God. All these in the last few weeks, not years, weeks. These are signs that tell us that Jesus has sent to tell us that he is almost here. This world is headed to destruction. It will not continue. And just as assuredly as the rain fell on the ark, so Jesus will come in the clouds of heaven. And he will come whether we are ready or not. But he gives us these signs because he loves us and he says, come to me, have a relationship with me. I can protect you under my wings. I will take you through. And if ever there is a people without an excuse to be ready for the second coming of Jesus, it's us, Seventh-day Adventists, people of the book who know more, and I say this humbly, 
who know more about what I'm talking about this morning than any other group of people on the face of the earth. Men had become so hardened by their persistent rejection of light that even this scene produced but a momentary impression. Are these signs that Jesus is allowing in the world today that tell us that this world is coming to an end nothing more than a momentary impression on you in your life? They banished their rising fears by boisterous merriment and by their deeds of violence. What are you, Lloyd Groleman, banishing these signs? How are you banishing them in your life? Or are you listening, Lloyd? Are you seeing, Lloyd, what is happening in the world today? I've said it before. My grandfather was a pastor, died 40 years ago, spent his life preaching this message. If he woke up today and God put him in this pulpit, you might think he was a Pentecostal because he would be jumping up and down in excitement with the signs that are happening in the world today that are telling us Jesus is coming. And coming soon. And coming for you. That's why he's coming. You're not just coming for judgment, he's coming for you because he loves you. He doesn't want you to have to stay in this world of pain and hurt and darkness any longer than is necessary. Conclusion, sometimes all the evidence in the world is still not enough. For some Seventh-day Adventists, and I wish this wasn't the truth, the first thing they'll know about the end of the world is the second coming of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, the signs are here. They cannot be clearer. They are strong. The body of evidence is unmistakable. Jesus is coming soon. These appeals you hear in this church week by week from Clifton, from others and myself, I tell you, they will not go on forever. Your date with destiny and Jesus' return is rushing toward you. If I can appeal to you, Jesus loves you and believe it or not, so do I. I want to see you all in the kingdom, but not as much as the Lord does. Take it seriously. Take what is happening in the world today seriously. Look at the signs my brothers and sisters, look at the signs. Let the body of evidence impact your life. Let these signs soak into your mind and into your soul. The reality of Jesus coming is in these signs. Search, oh yes, search like you have never searched for Jesus. There is no safety. There is no safety in the times ahead of us. There is no safety in the times ahead of us outside Jesus Christ. That's no cliche. That's the reality of what you and I face. There is no assurance. There is no security in the time of the end outside of Jesus. And as I close, I just want to speak to you for a moment from my heart. In this church, Wurunga Seventh-day Adventist Church, where I've been sent to serve, where Clifton, praise God for Clifton, has been sent to serve. I am going to, and I don't apologise for this, keep looking for evidences that people God has given me to serve, that's you, 
are searching for Jesus. I'm going to keep looking for assurances that you are walking with Jesus because my life, my work, the reason God called me is to see his people, that's you, and encourage his people, that's you, into the kingdom to be ready for him when he comes back. I don't want the Lord to come back and only have eight people in this church ready to meet Jesus. I want a great congregation and not of hundreds but of thousands of people who are lost and are now saved in this church ready to meet the Lord. And I'm going to keep looking for assurances. And I'm not God, so I can only look from the outside. But I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it unapologetically until either you toss me out or the conference moves me. For evidences, for assurances that you are walking with Jesus, that you are, I'm looking for evidence that you are seeing the signs, that you are ready, praise God, for his return. I look for, and I do it. I do it unashamedly and I do it in a very non-judgmental way because I know the struggles I'm having. But I'm looking for evidences of Bible study and prayer in people's personal life. There's a reason I mention Bible study and prayer so much is because that's where you find Jesus. That's where you get ready for what's ahead of us and what I believe we're already heading into. I'm looking unashamedly for increases in numbers of people attending prayer meetings. It's not about telling the other pastors we've got 10 or we've got 30 or we've got 100 people at prayer meeting. I'm looking for evidences that the people of God are responding to his call, are seeking his presence. I'm looking to see more people at Sabbath school. Not because it's good to see the church full for Sabbath school, it is, but because that's a time, and how many times have I said this in five years at this church? We have good Sabbath schools here, good teachers. We have a good Sabbath school up the front. It's a time where you come and seek the Lord with other brothers and sisters. You seek, you're searching for the Lord. I want to completely finish now by sharing with you this text, Ephesians 1.5. And I believe this is a promise for us as we've looked at this sobering subject. God was kind and decided that Christ would choose us to be God's own adopted children. You know, as I've reflected on this study and the impact it's had on my life and the impact I pray it will have on yours, and go home, read Genesis 6, read Genesis 7, go to Patriarchs and Prophets, I couldn't help but think, you know, God could have chosen Noah to live in your place in these last days. He could have chosen Abraham, maybe Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, those three worthies who were put in the fiery furnace. He could have perhaps chosen Daniel or Paul or John the Revelator. These are mighty men who strode through history. But he didn't. God chose you. God sees something in you that he did not see in these men and women of renown in the past. Respond to what God sees in you. Stand up, open your eyes, see the signs, prepare for the coming of Jesus, for God's people, and that is you. Sometimes all the evidence in the world is enough. It is enough. And I pray that that will be your experience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've looked at the flood, the people of the flood, 
We've looked and wondered, Lord, at how they missed the signs. And yet here we are living in 2005. Stupendous signs that dwarf the signs you gave the people of the flood in their immensity, in their loudness and in their clarity. God, we are a poor people and I include myself foremost in that group. How we need your presence in our life. How we need you to see us through these end times, to help us to be faithful, to unplug our ears and to clear our eyes, Lord, so that we will invite you into our hearts and we'll let you take care of us as we face the most momentous, frightening, sobering and yet exciting times the world has ever seen. May we be a people who stand high, see the signs and accept the evidence. Jesus is my prayer in your name. Amen.